Hey friends, if this is your first time listening to the Spillway podcast, we encourage you to start at the prologue and work your way up to this sequential episode. If you choose to forge on despite this plea, keep these four things in mind. First, we are a serial. Our work is relational, and the beginning episodes are about building trust, familiarity, and shared frameworks and contexts. And also, white people talking to white people about white people things is a newer concept for a lot of folks. We don't want to push people into the deep end. So please, save yourself the headache. We'll be here when you're caught up. Two, stay in your own lane. We build space to examine, critique, hold, and love white people as we navigate pushback and relapse in the mechanics of white supremacy and white shame within white culture and white culture alone. And that's however much we can in the fluidity of culture. Three, we're in the combined fabric of destiny. Our humanity, as Dr. King defines, is interrelated. Everyone is caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That's point one. Point 3.5, we are a piece of the broader racial justice movement. We're not trying to divert resources nor claim that we're a one-stop shop. Being in cross-cultural community, educating ourselves, and being in good relation is unquestionably vital to our work. This show is about white people, cleaning and mending our own section of the fabric and the work we need to do before, during, and after showing up in shared spaces. And lastly, one right way. This form of grounding empathy, compassion, patience, and understanding at the core of white culture may or may not work for everyone. That's okay. There are other resources out there. We all share the same goal as beautifully defined by Adrienne Marie Brown to create a world where everyone experiences abundance, access, pleasure, human rights, dignity, freedom, transformative justice, peace. We long for this. We believe it is possible. We're trying this approach, but that doesn't mean that it's the best or right approach for you. If it doesn't apply, let it fly. And with that, for better or worse, we began entering the spillway. Hello, and welcome to the Spillway Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Lauren. We believe three things. Hurt people can hurt people. White people are hurting. And our healing is possible. This is a podcast devoted to understanding the complex nature of living as white people in America. Without supremacy or shame. A few months ago, Lauren started an organization, The Spillway around supporting white people to work through perpetrator-induced traumatic stress, or PITS, and intergenerational trauma. Lauren offers this service with the acknowledgement that healing work is merely one mechanism within a larger network required to sustain our collective movement towards racial justice. Lauren seeks to grow the services available rather than redistribute where we put our efforts and funding. To get this message out there, Lauren asked one of the most compassionate, ferociously tender, hilarious, and incredibly smart humans they know to join them on this podcast journey, me. 
Lauren and I come from similar yet separate backgrounds. Importantly, we offer incredibly different perspectives, sometimes just by who we are as people and other times by the different identities we hold. We are committed to building compassion, understanding, empathy, and patience into the present and future of whiteness and white culture. We cannot change the past, but we can change the future through the actions that we take today. We seek to embody the work of James Baldwin, Sonia Renee Taylor, Kazuhaga, Rezma Menakam, Kai Chang Tom, and countless others asking for white people to, in so many words, get our shit together. Since starting the spillway, there's been consistent feedback, sometimes within the same space, that white people are engaging this work with closed hearts and minds. This work can be difficult. And it can be beautiful. It's an exercise in vulnerability and unlearning perfectionism with real world consequences. All of this in the age of seven second judgments. We hope that the spillway and our living in it can give others the courage that's needed to join us in this work. We know that attempting to be vulnerable and consenting to learn in public is incredibly terrifying work. And yet we have to start somewhere. Conversations of race and racism aren't going away anytime soon. Given our incredibly different places in the world, we're trying to create a middle ground where white people can get together to talk and create action around the paradox of being white in the U.S., where we are simultaneously the perpetrators and the victims of race and racism. And so here we are, two white people committing to the work of individual and collective healing around race and racism for white people. Healing ourselves is no one's responsibility but our own. Let's heal together and grow to stop the impacts of race and racism in the lives of people of color and our lives as well. Welcome to our podcast. Okay, so this convers this conversation started technically mm-hmm. a year ago this time, and I was in leading social change at Penn Carey Law School. Um, it wasn't even a class that I wanted to take oh. because, as a as a master and law student, um, we had to take classes specifically where you were reading case law. And in this class, you weren't reading case law. You were reading a book a week about how to be an effective social change leader. Oh, and you hated that because... (laughs) Because I was in the School of Social Policy and Practice simultaneously earning uh, a dual master's in social work and social policy. And I was over Mm -hmm. at the law school to get my third master's in law. Oh, okay. So I was like, I don't... I don't need this. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm getting policy, I'm getting social work from other places. So I had to do additional work in order to be in this class... Um, but I was encouraged to just go to this class because Ben Jealous and Ariel Schwartz were the teachers. So it was like, okay, fine. Um, and I did. And it was, and is the reason that I'm sitting here today because I went to this class. And the very first class, we were talking about leadership. And Ariel Schwartz, who is white, uh, was talking about leadership and how we need to tap into this idea that power is limitless. And I know we've like talked about that on the podcast before. Yeah. And I was like, as a white person, I was sitting there like, no, 
Like people are not supposed to have power. This is awful. Ariel, shut up. Shut up. People of color in this space, shut up. So you did that inside, right? You didn't oh, do I that outside. Inside. Oh, okay. All, all inside. All inside. Okay. All inside. That theater training. Anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so as class was ending, um, because oh, and here's the other like annoying part. It happened at Wednesday nights. It started at 7 p.m. and it went until 9 30. Oh, that makes me want to cry. Like, who was to sign up for that class? But it was just <laughs> no because of people's schedules. No one was. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, Ariel, can I talk to you after class? And Ben was like, oh, I'm I'm just going to like go off camera for a second. I'll be back. But my office hours are technically after this class. And so Ariel and I are the only two like in the space. But Ben's screen is still up. But it's like it has his like name like he's logged off. And I was like, hey, like white person to white person. Like I'm really struggling with this idea about like taking up power and taking up space um, because I believe that like, you know, white people and power, like we should just be like taking more power away from white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ariel was like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, you should say that in class. And I was like, no, uh, this is <laughs> no. no, <this laughs> white person to white person. I don't want to burden is... folks of color with my feelings, with my right. stupid white feelings mm-hmm. within 30 milliseconds. On comes Ben Jealous. He like rushes into the screen and his camera pops on. He was like, are you talking about race? What's up? <laughs> and I was like, no. No, I was trying to talk to Ariel. I was trying to create like a, an affinity space to talk about my stupid white feelings. And then Ben just went the fuck in and was like, whoa, hold on. Like race impacts you too. And like gave me this like really intense rundown. And it was like a really transformative experience because it was like potentially the first time I had ever been in like a mixed space where shame wasn't centered in the conversation telling me and having this dialogue with me about power. Mm. Uh, And it like really like jolted a lot of my synapses together to be like, Oh shit. Like this work feels more, it feels more personal. It feels more vulnerable. And it started mm-hmm. to connect to my work within queer and trans work around like, Hey, I need cis folks. I need straight folks to talk to other cis and straight folks and get mm-hmm. them together because I'm exhausted as a queer person, as a non-binary person, uh, constantly having to do this work. And so I need more cis people to do this work. I need more, uh, straight people to do this work because, uh, cis heteropatriarchy hurts you too. And hurts mm-hmm. you in really huge and tremendous ways. Yeah. Um, and so then that's like really where the spillway clicked. And so being in Ben and Ariel's class for the next 14 weeks was amazing because I tried out all of these ideas. Uh, it really was like the workshop of the spillway and with the other, with the other law students uh, about the ideologies and the foundations that, that went in to create the spillway. Mm. Um, the ideological pennings that, you know, and we've talked about this in the shoot blocks, like this wasn't just like a wing and a prayer an idea and like, some glue and popsicle sticks, uh, <laughs> you know, like some data went into this, some research mm-hmm. went into this, some science went right. Into we this. weren't we weren't sticking macaroni to a piece of paper. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that either. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, it, it came out of these like really beautiful conversations and spaces and papers and feedback. Um, and so this this really was like a uh, as much as the spillway is now like uh, under my name and under. Uh, like this banner that I'm putting forth, uh, the people in that classroom, I owe like a huge debt of gratitude to. Okay. And so 
it was a year ago, Ben was like, we should have this conversation publicly. We should have this conversation at Penn. Um, and then uh, scheduling just like went awry. Mm-hmm. And so here we are a year later having this conversation. That's a great origin story. Yeah. Well, and I also love it too that Ben was like, he still remembered because he reached out in November, like just as I started. It was kind of bizarre. He was like, oh, we need to have this conversation. I still want to have this conversation. Do you want to have this conversation? And so we scheduled the March meeting, the conversation at Penn in November. And I just sat on it the entire time uh, because they didn't know if it was going to happen again because the first one uh, had to be canceled because of scheduling conflicts. Uh, so this conversation happened on March 23rd, 2022, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. Uh, they do this, uh, the SP2 speaker series uh, that the dean puts on, and it's conversations about race, equity, and justice with, they say, experts. Ooh. Okay. Oh, look at your okay. Head. okay. I hate that word. <laughs> hate that word. I don't think anyone's an expert in anything except for your own lived experience. Oh, I was going to say, I love that word when it's applied to me. <laughs> right. Everyone is an expert of yourself. Uh, well, actually, not always. Not, not always. always. So not let's take that back. Together. Yeah. And we're here for those people, especially mm-hmm. um, the messy ones. Welcome. Experts on social policy and social work. And so it's hosted by Penn and the University of Pennsylvania and the People for the American Way. They co-sponsored the event. So we'll listen to it. And then afterwards, we'll do our recap like we always do. Cool. Hi, everyone. My name is Sally Bachman, and I'm the Dean of the School of Social Policy and Practice, also known as SP2. It's my sincere pleasure to welcome you to our third virtual installment of this year's speaker series, Conversations About Race, Equity, and Justice with Experts on Social Policy and Social Work. Today's program, Beyond White Supremacy, Healing White Men as Tools for Violence Prevention and Harm Reduction, will be hosted by our colleague, Ben Jealous. Ben is a professor of practice at the Annenberg School for Communication the Penn Law School, and SB2, all here at the University of Pennsylvania. He also serves as the president of People for the American Way. Ben has an unwavering commitment to social change and racial justice that is in perfect alignment with our mission. When he was selected to head the NAACP at the age of 35, he became the organization's youngest ever national leader, His family's strong community activism dates back generations, and SP2 has been connected with him many decades through his 105-year-old grandmother, who's an SP2 alum. As we continue to confront the pandemic and ongoing issues with racial, social, and economic justice, it's important to explore white supremacy, its evolution in recent decades, and the role that white men can play in disrupting its prevalence. This conversation is an example of SP2's dedication to addressing complex social problems through education, research, and civic engagement. And now I'm very pleased and proud to introduce you to Ben Jealous. Thank you, Dean. 
it's uh, I'm excited about this conversation. I want to thank everybody who's joined us for this conversation. Now, as I was coming into this conversation, I was thinking about a joke from Dick Gregory. I'll tell half of which was, um, you know, he said, uh, "Racism is the dog that guards the white man's house." If, and then he went on a very profane way to Gregory Wood to explain that if black folks could have ended racism by ourselves, we would have done so. Um, I was grew up with my dad, uh, who uh, very taught me early on that men have a role in ending sexism and white people have a role in ending race in uh, ending racism. And that's very much the, kind of the spirit of the conversation today. But as I was walking uh, into my office here at Penn, I was thinking about uh, a walk I took at Oxford when I was a graduate student. I was trying to come up with my dissertation topic. I mean, um, and I, uh, my rather my master's thesis topic, and I ran into a headline it said "Black Teen Suicide Search." And as I dug into the numbers, what hit, struck me were two things: one, the Black Teen Suicide Search was Black teens really catching up with White Teen Suicide numbers. And the other was that the suicide rate amongst white men over 55 was then and has remained higher than the homicide rate, black men and boys between 15 and 30. So black men and boys are the age when they're most likely to commit homicide that we talk about all the time in our society. That rate is actually lower than the suicide rate of white men over 55, which we never talk about. And it was an affirmation uh, for me um, that my father's the importance of my father's work with a bunch of primarily white men in California, uh, kind of digging into their own issues, doing their own work, trying to figure out how to show up better for their family, for their community. And then I also went back to a conversation Stacey Abrams and I had in a church in Georgia with a son and nephew of Klansmen whose father and uncle had participated in lynching two black couples, the Moore's Ford Bridge, cutting the baby out of a belly of one many believe was the baby of a Klansman and of one of the women that were lynched. It was rare because women were not as lynched as frequently in the South. Um, and it was just grotesque. It was also one of the last lynchings in Georgia. And here he was decades later, now a fully grown man in his late 40s or 50s, just dissembling, talking about the trauma of having heard the stories from his uncle and his father as they bragged about the lynching. And it just affirmed for me that not only is Dr. King right, that we're all connected in, in in one single garment of destiny, but that just the conceit of the civil rights movement, that you cannot dehumanize somebody else without dehumanizing yourself and everybody around you. And I've heard similar stories from Bob Zellner, whose life story is now portrayed, I think, on Hulu, uh, called Son of the South, who was, uh, Bob was the son of a Klansman who murdered a black man in front of him. He was eight. His father lost his mind and then led his family into the civil rights movement uh, and became a big preacher of racial reconciliation in the South because he wasn't just a Klansman, he was also a Methodist minister. And it was the dissonance of those two that it caused him to lose his mind. And so today we're going to have a very special conversation. In addition to my father, we'll, I'll introduce in a second. We are joined by Pablo Cerdera, who's Associate Director of Restorative Practices here at Penn. And we are joined by my former student, graduate of SP2, and I believe a graduate of a couple other schools at Penn, Lauren Grishow-Shade, who uh, runs the Spillway, and is just a very courageous advocate for social equity and inclusion and justice in the, in the Philadelphia community. Before Lauren and Pablo uh, joined the conversation, Dad, I want to 
introduce you and going to ask you a question. My father, Fred Jealous, uh, was a student of Carl Rogers. He's the founder of something called the Breakthrough Men's Community in California, um, where, as he put it to me once, they kind of give men a training manual for just how to be like a happier, better human being. Um, I really came to understand the importance of the work when men's wives were coming up to me in my early 20s at the grocery store and tell, thanking me to tell me to thank my father for saving their marriage. And I was just like, this is awkward. Um, but it makes an impression on a, on a young man that your dad must be doing something important. Um, but my father also in, in our community um, was a leader in the civil rights community broadly. And, and, um, and that came out of his work since his early 20s. Uh, with the Congress of Racial Equality, the NAACP, and other groups, and also as a leader in what they used to call the men's pro-feminists in California. And dad, you know, all of that's true. And yet, you know, you grew up in like, leave it to Beaver, Maine, a very typical kind of 1940s, 1950s childhood. As you look at this country, um, racial tensions increasing, racial violence on the rise, extreme you know, what we used to refer to as extremism really becoming like the mainstream of at least one of our, you know, political parties. What are the conversations that white men should be having with each other, that we should be having about white men? We should understand about how racism and racial tensions work. What's the conversations, you know, that um, the work, the work that white men should be doing, if they really want to show up as vibrant men or members of an increasingly multi-everything society. Let's talk about beyond white supremacy, but that all is kind of wrapped up in a ball of like male supremacy, you know, cisgendered supremacy. There's all kinds of things that are wrapped up in that. One of the things that, you know, always impressed me about you is that there were a lot of guys who were kind of leading light to the old men's pro-feminist movement. Most of them were like itinerant preachers. Again, I gave the same sermon a whole life. I'd see them give the same speech across like 20 years. You actually have worked in one community, Monterey County, with men um, you know, dozens of men every year for decades, uh, helping them, you know, really try to kind of, you know, get over some childhood traumas and um, move past the walls that our society works, you know, sets up uh, and try to show up kind of as their, as their most full selves. So what, what should we, what are the conversations we should be having about white men and what are the conversations white men should be having with each other? I think you have to start, we have to start with, um, you know, those of us <clears throat> who are white men have to start by having a conversation with ourselves about what gets in the way of us being confident of the goodness of our love in relation to all people. Um, breaking, what keeps us from breaking out of the kind of tribal mentality or isolated mentality that we were raised in. In my experience, um, we have to start, we have to create an environment where men can have intimate and honest conversations outside of the role they think they have to play in order to be acceptable as a man. That is a challenge. Um, and it, <clears throat> it, um, means inviting men to become part of a, a slow-moving, deep-diving community where they actually reevaluate their relationship with themselves, their relationship to sexuality, 
their relationship to women, their relationship to their children. And my starting place for my own thinking and creating a curriculum was that the mainstream raising of boys in the United States is generally socially sanctioned child abuse, that training young boys to be obedient to the male role as the top priority is a violation of their humanity. It denies them much more love than we are willing to admit it denies them. And it sets them up to be um, isolated, addictive, angry, and violent, and searching for using the other as a place to download their rage and their shame and their fear, and also using the other in the case of things like sex addiction, using the other to get relief from the burden of playing the role they think they have to play that they hate secretly. And, and one of the questions we raised in, in Breakthrough is, when is our anger sacred? You know, when is it actually a positive force? When is our rage sacred? And in terms of the deeply personal, it's when we look at how much of our raising up to be real men was about, was not about love. We were told that it was about love, but it was really more about obedience and shame and fear too much of the time. And I think, uh, and I made that generalization as to help me decide how to put in the foundation. So in order to get me to be honest as a white male about how much my life is driven by fear and shame, you have to create a really safe space. You have to challenge the homophobia that keeps us isolated and objectifying each other. So you have to create a space where um, safety, affection, appreciation, support are all possible to help men ground themselves in the loving aspects of their humanity and in the truth of their own value. We don't start off um, having a negative conversation about ourselves or trying to download our distress on other humans. We start off with strong needs for affirmation, affection, safety. And too often, this is not what our childhoods are about. So that foundation has to be seen for what it is, clearly. And um, I think talking about, um, you know, what's it about that this these white men are so good at committing suicide? How come they win the suicide prize over 55? Well, it's not that complicated. I'm If I'm playing a role my whole life and I'm not part of my community, I don't have a community that is loving, connective, supportive, safe, a place to be honest, a place of true brotherhood based on love, then I have no use. My function is done and I am alone and I am left with these terrible feelings and no place to go. So it makes absolute sense to me 
that you'd find the suicide rate being that high. So um, the community aspect of it is important. And, and I started it because I, um, I started Breakthrough because, you know, when you were talking about men and child abuse or men and domestic violence or, or men and racism, you know, the only conversation about that human being was, he's a perpetrator, lock him up, punish the bastard, you know, and that's end of conversation. And after you work intimately with men who have been violent, you learn, yes, that's a part of who they are. But there's another, you know, dare I say, precious, untapped part of their humanity that is longing for some nourishment and attention. And that I, once I decided that that was true of all men, that longing, that sense of separateness, that longing, you know, find when they discover that orgasm doesn't take them to the other side, it doesn't take them to a state of connectedness, that they, they end up in the same place with the same struggles and the same negative conversations. Um, we need that intimate space where we can hear each other's truths. And I think that that has to happen um, for white men, it has to happen cross-culturally. Um, and you see now the, um, you know, what you're, what we're witnessing is an explosion of, of shame and rage, totally misdirected. You know, the shame blame game is the, is the game. And look at the response to Lauren's publicizing of our conversation. Oh my God. So those are some of the thoughts about it. I can't hear you, Ben. Lauren, we're going to go to you next. We do. You know, Dad, what you were talking, one of the things that struck me is when you looked at what that suicide rate correlates with, it's social I, I, social isolation. Right. That every type of privilege in our society seems to isolate you. gender, Wealth, you know, white men, their 50s are the richest, you know, 50 and above are the, are the richest group historically in our society. Um, race and, of course, race tracks with poverty. That you know, means you're less privileged. You live closer to people. And for white men, uh, and I'm studying in England, so I maybe a little bit of a bias at the time, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, what the, the professors at my, uh, you know, at Oxford, kind of what we all deduced talking about it was it seemed like the best suicide prevention institution, certainly in British culture, was the British pub, because it was the one place where these guys talked to each other. And of course, in deindustrialized America, the men's groups, you know, like the old, like odd fellows have dwindled, the neighborhood pubs, pubs have disappeared. Um, and so it seems like men here are, are even more isolated than they are in England. Lauren? Ben, that reminds me of uh, where white men are showing up predominantly in public spaces and they feel like that's in public sports or sports is a really important place. And the second the NFL started talking more about race, the NFL viewership just started to plummet immediately. Um, and it has been on the plummet uh, since increased conversations around race and racial justice. White people overwhelmingly don't like to talk about race we are the only race where a majority of us feel that way, where we talk about race too much. When I think about where we are going um, as a racial 
minority by 2045, racial conversations are only going to increase. They're not going to go down. Um, they're not going to go sideways, um, from my understanding. And so how do we hold the future is going to be more diverse, more vibrant, more connected? How do we do that? And are we doing that the right way now? Because we're, we're trying to build the future today, right? Like the actions and the way that we're interacting with each other and loving or not loving each other is going to have a profound impact on the way that we're able to communicate and be in fellowship with each other later on. One of the things that really brought me to this work is seeing so many white people hating other white people and so much self-hate um, when it comes to being white. When I saw that, uh, it reminded me a lot of my experiences working with queer and trans young folks um, here in Philadelphia. And that, that, that matches in that, yes, there are very different things. Gender and sexuality are very different from race. Um, but I keep, I kept seeing, um, young folks having these questions around, am I lovable? Am I good enough? In having more intentional and thoughtful conversations around race and racism, uh, in college and at this you know, youth center that I was working at, uh, I came to find that white people are having that exact same conversation, uh, almost in mass, um, trying to figure out what explicit racism looks like what implicit racism looks like, what microaggressions look like. And if we all start lumping white people into one group or one uh, understanding of who we are as individuals, how does that actually support us? How does it support the nuances and the the intricacies of who we are as, as people in general? The, the other thing that I was thinking about too, Fred, as you were talking, there are these three quotes that kind of pull me into this work. The first is by James Baldwin. And James Baldwin says, until white people are able to love themselves, the the question of being black won't exist. The, the problem of being black won't exist. Uh, the second is Bayard Rustin. And uh, he said, what is love can be cured. And so we have to lead with love. And the third is RuPaul. If you can't love yourself, how are you going to love somebody else? And so bringing that into a racialized conversation has been really, it's been interesting to hold in that when I try to promote these messages out in social media, I get really one of two responses. One, from the right, I get, well, don't talk about race. If you talk about race, you're the racist. We don't want to talk about this at all. Then on the left, I get, oh, no, 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 no. We aren't supposed to love white people. White people aren't lovable. We're not redeemable. And so I think I have found this like really interesting <laughs> way of trying to talk about race and that both the left and the right really don't like it. I want to talk about race and I want to talk about race in actually a neutral way. How can we get ourselves to come to a, an honest and open conversation about what it means to be white and to do that without shame and to do that without supremacy uh, is really difficult because of the way that we are entrenched, because of the way that we are socialized as white people to either talk or not talk. And then also how we deal with punishment. I find that that's actually like really big. And, and that's one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, working with Pablo and restorative practices is how do we break away from accountability abuse and we actually start trying to build paths and inroads into a more loving community, especially when violence or harm happens. 
Um, and it's not about demeaning. It's not about ostracizing or blaming as much as it is uh, trying to understand how we act and think and behave and breathe. And that requires a very vulnerable space, a very vulnerable space. Um, you know, those are just kind of my initial thoughts, Ben, Fred, and Pablo. Sorry, Ben, there you go. Yeah, I apologize. Um, Pablo, why don't you just keep on uh, riffing, I'm sure. Between Fred and Lauren, you've got some you've got some thoughts. Yeah, I have, I have a, a lot percolating. So first of all, I just want to say a lot of gratitude to be a part of this conversation. And thank you, Ben, for, for the role you're playing here, too, and, and Lauren and Fred for what you've shared. I think I might start before I respond just by situating myself and my work a little bit. Um, just because restorative justice and restorative practices is something that's not always familiar to people. Um, and, and I think knowing our context and knowing the circumstances we find ourselves in is also really critical in the way that Fred and Lauren were already gesturing towards um, to think about how to move forward. So again, uh, I'm a restorative justice practitioner. I'm also a white man, um, a white Hispanic man. And so want to think about the, the role that, I, that that plays in my life as well. I also think it's important to situate ourselves in space um, and recognize that the University of Pennsylvania, where I and West Philadelphia, where I live and work, is on Lenny Lenape land. I say this not as a sort of um, performative gesture, but actually as a way to highlight a direct source of our collective pain and trauma. And I say collective, all people who live on these lands that, that we call now the United States. Um, there's a direct line between the violence of settler colonialism and white supremacy and patriarchy, right? All of these structures are historical and ongoing and are made of people, implicate people, connect people, but are not powered by the particular actions of particular evil folks, which I think is sometimes how we think about harm doers and violence. But these are kind of inherently violent structures that shape the soup we swim in right, um, as a society, as a culture. Um, so I, I think it's really important to recognize the deep roots of these problems, and, and I'll talk more about it later, I'm sure. Um, I also want to just take a second to situate ourselves in terms of restorative justice. So for those of you who aren't familiar, a really brief way to describe the philosophy of restorative justice and restorative practices um, was articulated by Howard Zier, who's one of the kind of godfathers of the movement in the United States. And he describes it as a process to involve, to the extent possible, those who have a stake in a harm in order to uh, identify and address harms, needs, and obligations with the ultimate goal of moving forward with healing and to help people um, put things as right as possible. So again, it's a, it's a big, brief overview, but, but it highlights a lot what Fred and, and Lauren were talking about, the importance of, of interconnectivity. Um, of the importance of shared stake in harms um, and recognizing that we have obligations to be in good relation with each other, right? Um, to care for ourselves and our collective community. So it's very much tied up for me in this kind of concept of collective liberation, you know, this oft quoted idea that, that Lauren brought forward, that Fred talked about, that none of us are free until all of us are free, right? And that, that our liberation as, as white men is directly tied into the liberation of women of, of black folks, of indigenous people, of people of color, uh, and, and all sorts of other, uh, subjugated, uh, othered or minoritized groups. 
So to say that we as white men are not impacted by racism or sexism or these other systems of power is, I think, a total misrepresentation, right? We are impacted as perpetrators, as partial or total beneficiaries, and as Lauren and Fred talked about, in the spiritual and psychic harms that happen as a result of being perpetrators or benefiting from harmful systems. So recognizing that we all have needs that require attention, um, including those of us who cause or benefit from harm, I think is a really critical part of the restorative philosophy and resonates really deeply with, with what's been said so far. Um, so if we're working on healing and we're ignoring folks who are causing harm, uh, we risk doing a lot more harm uh, in the in the long term. Um, and I'll add also, um, you know, I, I think that Lauren, you talked about sort of hatred within whiteness, right? And white folks distancing themselves from each other. Um, I think a lot of that also has to do with trying to separate ourselves from these harms, distance ourselves from these harms, to set ourselves up as, as the good white people or as blameless or as not implicated in these systems um, through our critique and saying, and, and through a, a disidentification with whiteness. Um, as opposed to thinking about what are our ind individual and collective harms, needs, and obligations, right? As people who are implicated in these structures and these systems and these patterns. Um, and I also will say to, to build on Fred, and then I'll, I'll wrap up for now, is um, this idea about the centrality of community, um, the importance of community. Uh, I, I couldn't second it harder. Um, I, I really do think that we need practice, we need support to be vulnerable with one another, especially as men, um, especially as white men who, as you said, are, are trained from youth to uh, shy away from vulnerability and deep connection. And so a big part of what we do in restorative work is try to create containers where that vulnerability can be accessed and where people can practice being in closer, realer, uh, more authentic relationship with each other, which I think has a huge role to play in healing. So I'll, I'll stop for that. But, but yeah, again, thanks for, for having me as part of this conversation. No, absolutely. And, and the purpose of today's very short conversation is to really zero in on sort of dynamics between and surrounding white men. Obviously, it's in a broader context. There's a whole parallel, you know, set of issues in the black community of friends who are leading, um, for instance, the violence interrupter movement who deal with a lot of, you know, shame and issues of control and all that show up in the black community. Uh, and there's a whole parallel set of uh, issues with women. My dad's group Breakthrough was modeled, uh, was used as a model for a group called Break Free uh, of uh, women kind of adapting a similar set of lessons and conversations to the context of being woman. Today, we're zeroing in on white male and males and, and before going to the questions, Dad, as you were listening to Lauren and to Pablo, what kind of came up for you? What additional thoughts did you have or could see your wheels turning? You're on mute. Apparently, it's a jealous family problem. Um, <laughs> there you go. Oh, you missed what I said. Um, <laughs> well, I think that the, the thought that hit the deepest in me was, what brave men these two men are to walk into the pain. You're walking into a room filled with pain and it's gonna, you know, hit you at a cellular level every once in a while in a brutal way. Um, and how necessary it is um, both to walk into that space where there is 
so much generational pain, and also um, how important it is not to forget, you know, my hope for both Lauren and, and Pablo is they have um, a really good system of support where they can um, grieve and be appreciated and be loved and because it's so important not to be doing this alone. It is too much. It's too much. Um, I learned that the hard way. So I can could you preach talk about it that? having learned it the hard way. Yeah. Dad, Dad, could you talk about kind of where this work started for you for a second? You know, you, you talk about walking to a room of pain and what came to mind for me was your days even before men's alternatives to violence when you were at the volunteer center. Can you just talk about that kind of first year? Of walking into a room of pain in which well when when the um you know i'm i'm old enough to have been around when the child abuse prevention programs you know started to be volunteer organizations in the community and when that um you know when during the vietnam war the feminist movement was about the hope most hopeful thing in town where you could go for looking for hope um and I, it was striking how silent men were around the subject of violence. It was really, you know, the judges or the probation officers would say the right thing, but they really wouldn't show up. You know, they'd have the little marketing thing. But um, I was just, um, and so I felt, well, you know, this is, um, you know, this is a moment where, where it's time to break the silence. And I had my own fears from having experienced my dad's violence, but it was in the uh, in the engaging with um, people over domestic violence um, and 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 child abuse, other kind of domestic violence, um, that really challenged me. You know, are you going to step forward or not? Um, and so that was the, I guess the the moment of a deciding conversation with myself. And then when I started working with men who were beating up women and did it myself because I couldn't find it, why do you want to spend time with those guys was what I got in 1982. Why would you want to spend time? They're all bikers would change their violence, you know, and, and I was scared because I knew if you challenge their sense of entitlement, they would probably attack me. So I had that fear running as well. But what I learned from that was, um, man, these, these men are reenacting child abuse. When you heard their story, it was underneath their present time behavior. It was like, oh my God, the child, childhood is the father of man, like that quote says. And that was, and then I realized that you know, it's not just um, the men who are being physically abusive. It's the men, all men have problems with anger. All men have control issues. All men have addiction issues. Um, you know, pick your cocktail. You know, it's money and booze and sex or whatever the combination is, whatever the cocktail of choice. So that's when I realized that um, one, trying to do it alone. I mean, what really convinced me to not do it alone, the shocker was the second man who came up to me 
after the meeting and said, can I talk to you? And he said, I need to tell somebody that I murdered this guy in South County. I got my Vietnam veterans to kill this guy. And I've never been caught and I need to tell somebody. Well, talk about having pain dumped in your lap and no place to go. I'm not a priest. I'm not a cop. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a teacher. And I realized I could not continue to put myself in a position so that community was essential. So I got a group of men together and I said, um, we're going to be in training until every man in this room is willing to lead. Not watch me lead, but lead. And that took six months. And I think that program still, you know, still goes on. But, um, and, and, um, and this is a slightly a, a bit of a tangent, but, um, I think if you look at, you know, this problem in the context of all the other big problems, my rabbi friend is right. We need a new love story that everybody can be a part of. Amen. We need Amen. a new love story that everybody can be a part of without giving up their uniqueness. Yeah. As Dr. King would remind us, you know, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate yeah. cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I hope that got what you, got at what you wanted, Ben. I, no, it's good. I think it's just important kind of grounded in the work. You know, we're talking the context of, you know, uh, SP2, uh, social policy, social practice. Uh, you know, when uh, your your uh, mother-in-law was here in the early 50s, very early 50s before Brown, this was a uh, school of social work. So I thought it was important to kind of ground it in the work and describe what those rooms of pain are like. Um, I want to get to the questions uh, here. Uh, and Lauren, if you go down, well, somebody's asking for your personal information. So I'll let you handle that one directly. Uh, one question from Lois asks, isn't the common thread through racism, sexism, ageism, et cetera, homophobia, control? And then Priscilla kind of prompts, please don't leave, leave women out of the discussion. Clearly, we are the other half. Um, Dad, I, I'm going to direct the second one to you. But Lauren and Pablo, how would you respond to Lois's question? Is, isn't all this at the end of the, the day just about control, all the isms? I can go ahead and, and take a first attempt at talking about this. I, I think uh, for a certain way of thinking about it, I think the answer is, is yes, and, and um, on a certain level, right? Where um, these all these isms that we're talking about are about power structures, right? They're about imbalances of power. And what is power? The power is the ability to control the, your own life and the circumstances that surround you, right? Power in itself isn't a bad thing, right? We all deserve to have power to exercise our agency, to be able to control our own lives and, 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 our, and the circumstances around us. Where it becomes harmful is when that power shifts to domination and control, as you're describing. And I think that part of the reason for those kind of con that kind of control and, and, the, and the violence that comes along with, with trying to control others um, has to do with the sort of cognitive dissonance, spiritual wounds that folks, uh, particularly um, folks who are in structurally empowered positions, find themselves experiencing. So I define so spiritual wounds, we could have a long conversation about spiritual harm and spiritual wounding. But one of the one of the aspects of it that is relevant here that I want to bring up is that experience that we have when our conception of ourselves 
our conception of who we are supposed to be, right? As Fred was describing, um, based on our upbringing and based on these kind of societal power structures, misaligns with our actual experience, right? I think a lot of times people experience that misalignment as a spiritual harm, right? And from there comes this uh, reactive, defensive desire to exercise control or this feeling of woundedness, right? So, you know, somebody in the comments I saw talked about not all white men are wealthy and prosperous. And that's true, right? That's very true. And I think part of what we see with this rise in white supremacist violence is the disconnect, the dissonance between a power structure, between a national narrative that is rooted in my analysis in white supremacy, in the idea that white men are meant to be the pinnacle of social power and a reality in which that is less and less fully the case, right? But that idea, that structure, that, that narrative hasn't gone away. And so I think a lot of times people are, are experiencing a shift towards greater equality as a spiritual wound, as knocking them from what they understand on an explicit or implicit level as their rightful place in society. Um, which then causes a lot of internal and external harm and the desire and the application of, of domination and control. So again, I think it's got deep roots in our, as I'm saying, in our context and these structural, these kind of structural power hierarchies and these narratives, and then also in people's lived experiences. So I don't know if that directly speaks to the question, but that's what came up to, no, to, to no, mind for me. Powerful. It's powerful. Lauren? I think one of, Pablo, I think you hit it right on the head and I'm, not really going to add anything much more of substance outside of, uh, I think that woke culture and conspiratorial culture are these power grabs for control. And at the end of the day, this is about controlling language. It's about controlling ideology. And especially I have all of the right tools that you don't. And so then therefore I am needed. And it's, I don't think it, for me, a lot of the work of this Bowie is that there's this uptick, um, in this rhetoric around uh, what culture and conspiratorial culture um, while we're seeing the decline of whiteness as the normal or the status quo. And so they are, from my hypothesis, from my experience, um, they are also uh, like deeply connected. And I don't think that we can like shy away from uh, the way that our language, the way that our culture is, is, is evolving and changing. I, one of the things that I also think a lot about is even the way that we define racism. We say that it is social power plus discrimination. And what does that look like in a hundred years? Are white people still going to have social power? The question mark is probably not. And so even the very language that we're using now is in flux. And it's not going to be this light switch moment in 2045 where we go, oh, wait, 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 wait white people don't have social power anymore. So now let's reframe the way that we're talking about this. But this is like slow morph. It's the slow burn that I think white people are feeling of, oh, wait, I think that reverse racism exists. Oh, but actually it doesn't exist, but maybe it does exist, but not right now. And I think that that flux creates this need to control and this need to find uh, stability, to find grounding so that we know which way is up. That's, that's all I really want to add. You know, well, I think it, it, it also, and I'll come to you, Dan, in a second with the question about, you know, women, in, you know, in this work and, um, and in relation to men, because that question was asked, what kind of women in, in relation to men? The, 
to also really kind of understand like what what race is, you know, on a couple of levels, right? Like race historically amongst like Europe was a word for for tribe or for nation. We Scots are a mighty race, right? If you go in back in the you know Oxford dictionary, that's what you're gonna find, right? In the OED, that's what you're, what you're gonna find. Um race in America and then through America kind of globally a hundred years after 1619, like in the 1700s, the, the scholarship of Barbara Fields, for which she won a MacArthur Genius Award, taught us, well, that's when the modern American notion of race as, as, a, as you know, blacks is the missing link, if you will, between man and monkey, blacks is chattel, blacks is animals. Suddenly, the race roles themselves, which in the 1600s had been people of nationalities picked up at different ports in Africa, becomes Negroes picked up with no nationality listed like cattle and other forms of chattel. Um, and so the question is, well, then why, like what's the, and what you, what you get into, right. Are the colonial rebellions of the 1600s and African slaves and Irish indentured servants rebelling together and the splitting of those groups first, the difference between slave and indentured servant, but also then the difference between white and black. And when you look at Dr. King's, letter from a Birmingham jail and his conversation with his white jailer and saying, you know, basically saying to him, like, you should be on our side because this whole game is being run against both of us. The fact that most men, most white men aren't rich, just like most people in America aren't rich. That's like the point of racism, you know, at the beginning, if you will, uh, is, is keeping one group in power, one, uh, and a whole, most people not in power. My, uh, my grandmother's 105. You hear me talk about a lot. I really have been interrogating her life for a book that's coming out in HarperCollins in January called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, which is a riddle I inherited from her. And her grandfather walks out of slavery in Virginia. He's living in his uncle's house. His owner is his uncle. (laughs) He walks across the corpses of dead Confederates, as well as Union soldiers, but the Confederates were his cousins, to watch Lee surrender to Grant, and Lee was his cousin. And... Given yet all of that horrible history, he goes on at the end of Reconstruction, the very, very end of the 1880s, early 1880s, to lead a populist uprising with a Confederate general who was best known prior to that for massacring an entire black regiment that had surrendered the Battle of the Crater. And why? Because a very wealthy group of former plantation owners that both men detested for various reasons were trying to defund public education in Virginia, which was only a creation of Reconstruction, free public education, every child in the state. It's created during Reconstruction because they said, these far-right-wing conservatives at the time said, the state couldn't afford its civil war debt and free public education. And so all these working-class white men and working-class black men who previously had been opposite sides of a war band together. And what put down that populist movement in Virginia of the early 1880s was a violent white supremacist movement funded by white business owners who were threatened by black business owners taking over increasing share of the marketplace and were resent, you know, and, and, and were worried that not just poor blacks, but poor whites would become ungovernable if they got an education. And so, you know, I mean, that's the other thing, right? I think that where we ultimately have to get to is that white men, most of them, the ones who aren't rich, definitely have a vested interest uh, in ending racism because a p- big part of this has been a game to hold most folks back in this society, including them. Dad, I want to get, though, to the intimate question that was asked. You know, Priscilla said, you know, 
you know, and I think in a very sort of traditional American, you know, way, and she said that she's 78. So, you know, I think, you know, that women are the other half of, of every man. And certainly for straight men who are married, that's, that's very much like mom and you are, you know, yin and yang. When you're talking about sort of dealing with these issues of, you know, racism and patriarchy and kind of helping men become full human beings, less, you know, show up in a more human, less toxic way. Where are women in that conversation? What's the, you know, all those grateful wives at the grocery store? Like, what's their role in all this? Dad, turn on your, uh, you're on mute. I'm going to sing. So you want me to speak for women? No, I want you to speak as a man Uh, about, you know, who who leads other men about what you tell them to be. If we're looking at the tradition. Yeah. You know, okay, so in that, um, all the extremes of that compulsively binary world, men are raised to compete, win, in and dominate in a zero sum game in a zero sum game where you're either a winner or a loser now that's part of the shame bind that men carry women um in that traditional sense um needed men for security so you very often have a relationships between men and women set up as okay um it's women's job to, in, you know, in exchange for some measure of security, to be, to give men um, relief and comfort and release from the strains of trying to perform this role successfully day in and day out. So you are not entitled to challenge my, to challenge me. You're not allowed to threaten my playing of the role. So that's the tradition, which is we've been breaking down, you know, slowly over the past years. Um, men need it to break down as well for their own relief. But I, I think that, um, you know, women discovering, um, you know, as women discover, you know, more self-love and more of their own capacity, and how vital it is for them to be at the table and the difference they make and that uh, they don't have to live inside of that model. Um, that's a huge shift. And it's also without men making a similar shift, men are stuck in that same paradigm, thinking that they have to be a winner, they have to play the role, that they have to be a success object of some kind. Um, and that entitles them to services. So I don't think men have moved in the same way that women have. You see this in the resistance to, you know, taking on jobs that aren't manly and industrial, you know, as the service sector increases. You see a lot of the resistance, you know, with, with, with men who say they won't do that kind of job. So that, those are some of my thoughts. Thanks. So. Any closing thoughts, Lauren, Pablo? I would say I think that there is, I think this conversation is reinforced for me. There is this paradox of being white in America, and that is we are simultaneously the perpetrators and the victims of race and racism. And we don't have and haven't had services and resources to support that unique kind of balancing act that white people that we find ourselves on. 
Uh, and that is why this spillway is is trying to, to be here, is to support that very unique paradox that we exist within. And I I, I just want to like touch a brief moment on this idea that uh, white people are victims, because I know that that's also going to hit, I think, white men specifically in this really intense way. Um, I am not a victim. Uh, victim is actually the opposite of what men are supposed to feel. Uh, I think it's about power and control, right? Um, but it is actually, when I think about racism, I think about racism as almost a trauma response nowadays. And we think about mm. how, look, looking at the, the manifestations of how white men specifically are talking or not talking about race and racism, as uh, uh, preoccupation with race, the increased skepticism or cynicism, the irrationality, the emotional detachment, these are all textbook trauma responses. Uh, I, I don't, and for that, I don't believe in white fragility as much as I believe in uh, perpetration-induced traumatic stress. I think that that's actually what we're dealing with. And if we reframe the way that we're actually looking and talking and holding space for white people, it's actually to say, oh, wow, you're hurting too. You are hurting because of race and racism too. And so let's support you. Let's support this as well. And this isn't to like stop the entire movement and say, hey, let's like all focus on white people for a moment. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this is part of the larger process of racial justice and equity. Uh, but we haven't been doing preventative work. Uh, and so we just keep seeing the same cycles of, oh, no, let's do harm reduction. Let's try to put a bandaid over this. But what are we actually trying to do to prevent racism in the country? I know in a lot of spaces like SP2, uh, the very first, I think, mission within the school is to promote education. And education is really important. But then how do we internalize that? How do we feel that emotionally and spiritually uh, on top of an intellectual experience? And I think that that's really where the spillway comes in. How do we have this fully embodied experience about eradicating racism from our lives and the lives of those around us? It's a lot of what's kind of been bubbling to the surface for me in this conversation. Amen. Amen. Pablo? Yeah, I'll say just briefly in sort of summation of some of what I've been thinking about, you know, we need to address both the inter individual, interpersonal and structural harms, right, that, that permeate our culture and our society and our everyday lives and, and recognize also that all people who cause harm, right, all, all people are capable of harm, but particularly in this conversation, white men are not predominantly monsters, right, but our people, all of us have the power to do both beautiful and monstrous things depending on the level to which we are able to attend to our own needs and recognize and attend to the needs of other people that we are in community with, even if we don't have those active practice connections with them. Um, so again, for me, it, it means looking historically and structurally and, and also interpersonally. You know, Dr. Edward Valandra, who's a Lakota scholar and restorative justice leader, talks about, you know, the first harm of U U.S. is the dispossession of the land through genocide. And the second harm is the kidnapping enslavement of African people through this lens of the wisdom of the kind of concept of Sankofa that we have to look back to move forward, right? Those harms and their ongoing ramifications and permutations, we have to address those in ourselves and in our culture as we move forward as individuals and as a society in a good way. So uh, to, to noticing the time, I'll say less. I'll say healing and accountability are bound up in each other, right? Amen. They, and that we have to address those things kind of connectedly and recognize that we all, all have needs that require attention. 
Amen. Well, with that, we're going to come to an end too soon, but we're right on time. Uh, usually, uh, Associate Dean Jerry Bourgeois-Lee closes us out. Uh, Jerry, would you like to close us out? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben, Fred, Pablo, and Lauren, for this incredibly thought-reflective, thought-provoking, and informative discussion. As SB2's Associate Dean for Inclusion, I want to emphasize that conversations like this one are vital to our school's mission. This is a prime example of the kind of necessary dialogue we continue to encourage in our community. SB2 remains steadfast to its commitment to anti-racism, anti-oppression, intersectionality, inclusion, diversity, and social justice within our five degree programs and throughout our interactions with colleagues, our students, alums, and our external partners. I invite you to learn more about our work by visiting our inclusion page and the link for that page will be in the chat box. Thanks to everyone who has joined us today and details will be coming out very soon about our next speaker series event. Everyone have a great day. The main thing that struck, I mean, there were so many things. I would have to listen to it like a thousand more times to get everything out of it. But one of the things that struck me was the, the people who were responding to the spillway and what it does and what it stands for Mm -hmm. and the way that they were responding um, are coming from a place of pain. And so like in my head, when we do this, you know, I have a big fear of the the canceling mm-hmm. and um, it's always like I always view it as like from someone from the other, you know, like mm-hmm. they don't we're here doing this work and then they're over there right. and not a part of it and they don't want to be a part of it. So, OK, stay over there. You're scary. But it's just because they're in pain. I mean, I'm in pain, too. I'm not saying I'm sitting over here beautific and totally healed. I'm just saying that, like, Mm -hmm. oh, you're responding that way because of trauma and pain and harms and hurts. That's why. And this goes back to the hurt people can hurt people. Can hurt people. Right. You are Mm -hmm. in the camp right now that is you're hurting, but you're not actively trying to hurt another person. Right. And so the people who are like invested in these cancellation campaigns, the people who are like showing up on social media uh, when like the posts are being promoted and like best mm-hmm. people who like have no idea what the spill is and they encounter one random post and are receiving it out of context, mm-hmm. they're putting all of their pain into those posts. Mm-hmm. And they get real freaking frustrated and then they just start screaming. Well, I think the other thing that I want to mention too is uh, a critique that I often get in my work is that I don't, uh, a critique that I often get in my work is that I'm only talking to white people and that I'm centering whiteness perhaps too hard, that I'm not bringing in folks of color to talk about their experiences. Um, And it is twofold. Like I was saying earlier, part two of the spillway is about trying to understand what white people need so we can go into a do. And the do is about community and like building together, like cross-culturally. Um, but right now I'm like trying to study whiteness. And so to study whiteness, I need to talk to white people mm-hmm. um, because in my education and getting a master's in social policy and social work and then law, 
so much of it was reading about how folks of color are impacted by whiteness and being impacted by whiteness is not the same as being white. Right. And so I'm trying to, in my experience, I, I am trying to level out my own education. And so for some folks that reads as you're excluding folks of color from this conversation when, and then this is to my, to my bad, um, I, I haven't been articulating that. I haven't been articulating the work that I have done. And so I feel like this right. is the first episode in which I'm naming that I like have gone to school for this, that this is what I've been educated in mm-hmm. rather than, oh, I've got an idea and a tinfoil hat. Let's try this. <laughs> I mean, you do have a tinfoil hat. I totally have a tinfoil hat. Um, and an idea. So, And I think I'm pretty sure we've talked about this a lot. Um, everyone from, not everyone, but a lot of people of color from I've seen this in comedy stand-up specials. I've seen this in political debates. I've seen it um, on Instagram. Have said that when the pandemic was happening, and then George Floyd died, which started, you know, and then there there was a lot of other awful deaths. I'm not saying he was the only one, but that was mm-hmm. the sort of the catalyst, right, mm-hmm. for all the um, white people on Instagram and in those people's lives to call them or reach out to them and say, I'm really sorry. What can I do? Mm-hmm. Right. And those people were like, why are you sorry now? Yeah. Like the second, like you've been my friend for years or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they were like, go do your own, <laughs> go do your own work. It's like mm-hmm. what you said about being exhausted as a queer person. Cause you need other cis people to talk to other cis people. It's the same right. thing. Right. It's right. not that you're trying to actively block out people of color. It's that because they don't need to to do that work. Right. It's like a it's like a don't need to. And then I think the other part is there's this huge naming of I don't want to do that work either. Right. Like yeah. they don't. Yeah. I meant there, that. And then need like. Right. And there are there are folks of color who do want to help white people heal. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. And to me, the work of the spillway or the work of other like white people working with white people is this is one piece of the puzzle. This isn't the entire puzzle. We're not saying that this is the be all and all. This is the one stop shop. No. But I feel like folks receive it as anything is supposed to be the one stop shop because that's the way that capitalism and white supremacy have set up businesses. You're supposed to go to Walmart and get everything you need. Right. And that's not what this is. That's not, not what this is. Mm-mm. We are not Walmart. Can nope. we be Target? I kind of want to be the Pez store. I remember <laughs> <laughs> there was a Pez store. That went away. I never thought it was It was in come. like Southern California. I feel like we just went to like Universal Studios and it was like on your way out of there. And there was this like little Pez store. And it's like, you only sell Pez. How do you stay afloat? <laughs> how do, how, well, how, it's like the M&M you, store in Times Square. You sell one thing. You sell one one thing. Well, and you sell things associated with that one thing. But like, how do you? I'm not going to the M&M store to go grab toilet paper. Why? Why would I? Unless they sell M&M toilet paper. Right. Like branded toilet paper. Like that'd be cute. But I'm not going to. That'd be really cute. That would be really cute. Right. The little M&Ms on there. Pez toilet paper would be even better. It just lends itself like the individual toilet pieces. Mm-hmm, they could like come out of the toilet mouth and then just, like, pull <gasps> out the pieces of toilet paper. Uh, 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 and just pull out the toilet paper. Right. Oh It'd be pretty 
Yeah, the spillway. If the, the spillway store. doesn't work out, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go open a Pez store. So we're the Pez store, or you're right. the Pez store. I'm right. the Pez. No, mm-hmm. yeah, my... well, it's you're the Pez. You are the candy. You are the sweetness that goes into this. I'm the candy. Um, How good was it to hear Fred's voice again? Uh, and then he God. also said precious again. And I was like, yes, precious. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, I'm losing <laughs> the thread of what he's talking about. Um, you know, but when even Fred was talking about um, people who had committed great harm, that even yeah. at their base, there could be some preciousness that needed to be loved and valued. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's Ben, who's very, they had some really fun, like, child parent moments. <laughs> oh my God, I was going to say that too. It was totally Dad, you're too. muted. Dad, Dad, you're <laughs> muted. And then Fred's like, Ben, we can't hear you. <laughs> I love that moment too. And he was like, You want me to talk for all women now? Okay. I know. <laughs> and then there was like a, a flurry of like, <laughs> And I was like, Oh. Uh, family. So cute. Like, mm-hmm. I would love to be around their table for some sort of like family My gathering. The, that would be because that's only two of them. Like, I would love to see the entire family in on it. Because mm-hmm. they're all wicked smart and like super credentialed and have been work- oh doing God. this work for a long time. And so, right. I can only imagine. Should we do like a little thing where I'm like, hey, friends, thanks for listening. Just a little reminder, rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends. It helps us out. (laughs) Bye. There, I just did it.